All right, brothers and sisters, it is, once again, Sunday, May 30th, 2021. We're now just on the brink of the month of June, which is kind of crazy how fast five months have passed by. Uh, but we're in the 13th chapter of the, of the book of Judges. Uh, so we're past the halfway mark and we're approaching the end and the latter narratives of this book. And hopefully it's been enjoyable for you as it has been for me in learning so many things about this very important book in the scriptures. So let's continue to read in the book of Judges as we turn to 13th chapter. And maybe we're finally getting to a character and narrative that you're familiar with. Uh, at least a lot of you, if you grew up in the church in Sunday school, might have learned of Samson, uh, one of the judges of Israel. Uh, we're not quite there yet, which we'll, we'll look to that sort of um, main narrative of Samson and his legacy uh, next week, but today we're going to be looking at sort of, I guess, the preface to Samson, which is his birth and the nativity story of uh, this judge. So let's read together Judges 13. It's 25 verses. I'll read it. Follow along in your Bible. And um, this is the Word of God. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, Man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah entered, entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the, again to the woman as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink, or wine, or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I have commanded. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering... Then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock of the Lord to the Lord. And he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar after, uh, toward heaven, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. 
So Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. When the child grew up, the Lord blessed him. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadon between Zorah and Eshtal. Amen. This is the word of God. We're going to pray for Unreached People Group of the Day. And they come from Nigeria of Africa. They are the Bang'i of Nigeria. There are 26,000 of these people. Uh, their primary religion is uh, an ethnic religion. So meaning uh, there's a, it's basically what the Bible would describe as sort of pagan idolatry. Uh, similar to what the Israelites are dealing with in Canaan right now. <clears throat> but uh, it's various uh, ethnic I guess traditions and religions that are part of uh, this people group, but they are completely unreached. No Christians in this community. So we'd like to pray for them. I know it's just 26,000. Kind of funny to say just 26,000, but there are 26,000 of these souls who need the gospel of Jesus. So let's pray for that. Well, of course, we're continuing to pray um, for the word to speak to us today and for the world around us as so much continues to happen and occur, uh, occur in this world. Um, yeah, we need to continue to pray for, for safety locally here and uh, people's well-being as COVID numbers are going down and as weather's getting nicer and things are starting to open up, that even amidst positivity, that there, there is still, um, of course, productivity in, in the area of well-being and health. We also like to pray for, of course, um, people in, um, in Israel right now who are still continuing to deal with the unfortunate reality of the tension in the war, Gaza Strip, and West Gaza, and Jerusalem, and etc. We like to pray for them. We pray for their safety and their recovery, and uh, continue to pray for those people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for the gift of your word today as it speaks to us through your spirit. I pray that, Lord, this word would be uh, not just compelling to the mind, uh, but moving of the heart. And so, Father, help us, God, um, that in our own state, of course, we cannot receive what is there, uh, but that we are opened and and given, gifted by the Spirit, uh, the truth of this word. We also pray, Lord Father, for um, the Bang'i of Nigeria. And we pray, Lord God, for their salvation. There are 26,000 of these people who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And by whatever means you've ordained, we pray that it would reach them that they hear and they respond in positivity and the Lord uh, that you would regenerate them to faith and salvation. God, we also pray uh, for uh, the world around us and what's happening, especially in the East, uh, specifically in Israel. And we pray, Lord Father, for the unfortunate uh, civilians who are being uh, affected by uh, a war and are losing homes and families and members of their family and losing loved ones. Uh, we pray for both sides uh, without taking any specific side um the lord we understand that there's casualties and we pray for recovery in those communities and we pray lord god a church would be a voice of reason uh in a season where um things are definitely a little bit tumultuous and a little bit tense and so god um give us good perspective and wisdom in our speech and our conduct uh but let us be fervent in our intercession and our prayer all this we pray in your name amen Okay, our sermon is entitled, The Savior is Born. And as soon as you hear that title, you're going to think, Jesus, right? But of course, um, today we're dealing with a very specific type of Savior. He is a type of Savior, He's not the Savior. So it's a Savior of some sort is born, if you will. Chapter 13 of the book of Judges brings about a new twist 
to what we've already seen thus far, uh, to our seemingly never-ending cycle of Israel sinning, God punishing, Israel crying out, and God delivering. We've seen this pattern over and over and over again. It's been pretty predictable, if you will. It's been repetitive and somewhat of a mundane pattern so far, right? I'm sure you're sick of it. You're like, oh, nuts. I thought I read this chapter before, right? I've seen this before, right? Um, how many times can Max just repeat the same stuff over and over again, right? Now, of course, each episode thus far in the 12th chapter, 12 chapters of the book of Judges had its, had, has had its own sort of unique tastes, if you will. Uh, but Judges 13 is the beginning of the story of perhaps the most fabled Israelite judge of all, Samson, right? Everyone's heard of Samson, the big strong guy. Samson, of course, a man known for his mighty strength, known for his long hair, his delight in women, and ultimately being somewhat of a disappointment, right? Now, I remember growing up and being taught about Samson in Sunday school, and the takeaway was mostly negative. Do not be like Samson, right? Um, that was sort of like a warning sign. But again, brothers and sisters who take our Bibles seriously and read it carefully, do not be swayed to focus so much, again, on the imperfection of the mortal vessels of deliverance, although there's a lesson in that. For that is to be expected of humanity, right? But in the grander scheme and in the grander meta-narrative of the book of Judges and the entirety of the Bible, really, Remember, like we talked about last week, that our lens and our lessons are to be viewed from a theocentric perspective. What are we learning about God is also an important question to ask, if not the question to ask. Now we are to learn the perfection of God through the reflection of the imperfection of man, of us, so that our hearts would be moved, right? Taught to turn to the one and only true Savior of our lives. So yes, today's narrative shares some similar qualities to our Christ's nativity, right? An angel telling a woman she will give birth, and a boy growing up to be a Savior of Israel. Where the similarities end is where we discover the uniqueness and perfection of our one true eternal Savior. And we're going to get there to Jesus Christ. So, three points today to, the, uh, three points to today's sermon. So tongue-twisted today. I don't know what's going on. Three points to today's sermon. Number one, growing numb to sin. Growing numb to sin. Number two, something out of nothing. And number three, no greater Savior. So the three headlines of our points today. So let's look at the first point. It's just comes straight from verse one. Something I noticed, and I think you noticed as well. Um, growing numb to sin. What do we see in verse one? Let's read it one more time. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. You've seen this before. I could have, you could predict that this is how this story would begin. But what's missing here? So that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And then it goes into the birth of Samson. What's missing? Israel crying out. Israel does not cry out here. After being punished. Now there's an ancient Chinese proverb by a Confucius philosopher named Lao Tzu. That once said, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. This is, of course, true. It's just, I mean, it's common sense, if anything, right? It's as true as the Western saying, you have to learn to walk before you can run. Now, there are elementary or principle, well, elementary principles or fundamental steps 
to greater accomplishments, right? You don't just jump to great things. You don't just climb a mountain by saying, I'm on the top of the mountain. You get to the top by taking steps, pre preparation. So as much as these words ring true for positive accomplishments, and positive goals, they are true of negative downfalls, right? The most difficult sins to remove, correct me if I'm wrong, from our lives are really sinful practices that have become so natural to us over time. Daily sins, habitual sins, sins we sort of disregard because we just commit them all the time. Because they begin at some point in your life as a step, and then they grow into a habit. And so that step just become a thousand miles. These are sins we've grown numb to. And perhaps we are observing this in Israel. Here we go again. So I'll just forget about it. Early in the pandemic season last year, I began running every weekday. And I only did this like, I wasn't like that great of a runner, but I try to run every day other than like rainy days. <laughs> so at first, I was so out of shape. I'm sure all of you can understand like, or relate, right? first i was so out of shape because pandemic killed us um and that running initially just even a kilometer two three kilometers to say that it was a task is like super like undermining it like it was it was not a task or a chore it was legit like the worst feeling ever <laughs> like it was it was just pain that's all i can it was suffering it was literally walking through the valley of the shadow of death right um for my body not for my soul but it was so hard but every day as my body grew more and more accustomed to the bodily strain of running and eventually um just getting used to it i was able to run upwards of 10 12 15 20 kilometers pretty consistently um it wasn't fun and i eventually stopped because everything else opened up and started playing tennis and other things but once that habit uh, broke as winter came because obviously gyms are not open so I wasn't running and I stopped running I, th I just thought to myself yeah I'll just pick it right back up when spring comes and weather's nice again so weather got a little bit nice went out for a jog for a run and it was terrible <laughs> it was valley of the shadow of death again right so I thought I could just pick up where I left off this spring but the body had just adjusted back to being a potato now habits when they become habits are not just they're not just habits out of nowhere like you don't just wake up and go oh here's a habit good or negative right good or positive like good or bad positive or negative habits all of these things are developed incrementally incrementally and they grow to make ourselves accustomed to practice the funny thing about bad habits is that at first you're like oh i shouldn't be doing this and you kind of think about it there's a thought process to it and there's a consciousness to the negativity of what you're doing but as it becomes more and more of a common practice in your life, you grow numb to committing that act. It's like, oh, I got away with it once. It's fine. Nothing bad happened. I'll do it again. And then it grows to something worse. And it leads to something worse than that. And worse than that. And worse than that. I think the most obvious example of this in all of our lives is sexual sin. Right? Um, if you've ever been 
you are or have been in a dating relationship, you break one boundary, you break another, you break another, and another, and another, 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 and it just keeps growing and growing, and you're like, oh, I've already come too far, right? <laughs> Woe to me, right? So here, Israel has grown, I think, weary. I think a lot of commentators agree with me on this. They've grown weary to their sins. They've grown accustomed to this cycle, this habit of sin. So much so, they no longer cry out to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, does that terrify you? It does to me. As soon as I read this and I saw this missing piece in this text, where is the crying out to the Lord? It was as if someone put a mirror on chapter 13. I saw myself and I said, oh my goodness, this is exactly me. Where is my crying out to the Lord? Where is that? It's gone. So much so that they just stopped crying out altogether. That's what's missing here, isn't it? Where are the cries for deliverance? Israel was in dire state prior to this chapter. But what this opening verse reveals to us is something far worse in Israel than just their repetition of sin. And this is my fear for all of us, including myself. Apathy. And dare I say, brothers and sisters, is this apathy present in you and I? In the church today? We thought crying out to God only in times of need was bad? Or crying out to God in selfishness or theological abuse, so to speak? What's worse than those things? You might ponder. What could be possibly worse than those things? Why, it's not crying out at all. It's no longer caring to cry out. Dale Davis writes on this verse, Once you see this Israel, you marvel at this Israel's God. You see this state of Israel. And how can you, he asks, not marvel at this God of Israel? He writes, what does he do when he has a people who refuse to forsake Baal and have no desire to forsake Philistia? A people grown so used to bondage, they don't even have the sense to call out for relief. At least here, the very God who judges them begins to still work for their deliverance. Anyway, I love this part. He writes, that is grace. Grace greater than the worst of all your sins, than all our stupidity, than all our density. That is grace. We must be cautious, brothers and sisters, to never become so numb, too numb to our sins to place such a normative expectation on our everyday sinful habits that we grow apathetic to repentance. Maybe Israel just expected God to deliver them anyway, or perhaps they just gave up on themselves as well. Both are not the attitude as believers that we are to make examples of. Let us be ever so caring of our holiness, that our lives do not degrade to this point of sinfulness. The great sin of no longer caring 
about what God cares about most in us. J.C. Ryle, in his book uh, called Holiness, he wrote, Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God, according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. I hope that the pursuit of that would never cease in your life, that you would not grow apathetic to even the slightest and smallest, so-called smallest, sins of your life. Cry out to the Lord. Point number two, something out of nothing, verses 2 to 23. It's the meat and potatoes of our text. One of the great doctrines of our church, of course, and of our faith is the doctrine of creation. And the doctrine of creation, one of the points is in the Latin, creatio ex nihilo, meaning creation, something out of nothing. Creation out of nothing, right? Just something came to be created out of nothing. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth, according to Genesis 1, uh, by the word of his mouth. Uh, he proclaimed all things into existence. He said, let there be, and it was. But these things were crafted from nothing. Something out of nothing. So far in the deliverance of Israel in the book of Judges, Israel uh, leaders have risen from various groups and tribes already present in Israel and men and women already existing in Israel, all varying in character, background, and origin. But a common denominator has been that God has called men and women who already were. Right? He made use of people that were already there in those communities. But in today's text, we have a twist, as I mentioned earlier. In Israel's silent reaction and in their apathy of God's punishment, God does indeed still deliver them. We've already identified that to be grace. But he fashions this deliverer, this new deliverer of Israel, from the very outset, from its very conception. He takes a barren woman one with no children, gives her the gift of a child, probably the best day of her life, and promises this child to be a deliverer for Israel over the Philistines. Isn't that extraordinary? This teaches us a lot of things. Uh, but I'll just highlight a couple things. The story of this unnamed wife of Manoah is not necessarily unique in Scripture, right? Before her, we have We've already seen Abraham and Sarah. We've seen Rebecca and Rachel, barren women whose wombs were not open, and God opens them, and they have children, right? And after her, we have the stories of Hannah, Samuel, and Elizabeth with John the Baptist, right? All women who are barren conceived a child following a promise from God, some kind of angelic figure coming to them and promising that, or other means. Something that stands out, however, with Manoah's wife is that she remains anonymous and unnamed, we don't have her name. Even though the authors had no trouble mentioning female names before. Deborah, for example. And the extensive exchange and instruction from the angel of the Lord is quite peculiar. One of the highlights I think I see in the instruction is, of course, when they come to him and they say, well, what are we to do with his vocation? Like, what, what are we supposed to do once he's born? What should we teach him? How should we raise him, right? Is sort of the gist of the question. And this seems to be a lot of times the question of our own heart. God, what am I supposed to do with my life? How do I make meaning out of it, right? How do I make this life worth it? And God, the angel of the Lord's response is, don't drink, don't do anything unclean, just follow my instruction. Just completely disregards the question. Like, this is any vocational thing. There's just this 
sanctity to this child that the angel is concerned with, right? And this is what I've been trying to presenting, or sorry, what I've been trying to teach and present to a lot of our church is that perhaps our questions need to be geared more towards our sin and our repentance and our holiness than towards our career aspirations. Another point here is what we have here is grace. How so, you might ask? Well, isn't it obvious? Even Israel is not crying out, not repenting, falling deeper and deeper into total apostasy, which they will eventually by the end of the book of Judges. And in this time, God chooses to raise a deliverer through a barren woman. It is here that he acts on his own accord to remind us of this, that every judge prior in line with even Samson was also given through the means of God and his grace alone. That none of these seemingly impressive men and women were in fact deliverers until God called them by their own merits, but by the hand of God, right? We are reminded of the source of control and saving. It also reminds us that grace is not a some sort of just reactionary movement by God. It's not a reaction of God to our cries or to our prayers. Grace is God's own free choice, His will to act, to choose to save us. Not done out of any sense of obligation or responsibility or emotional response to human need. Right? There is sympathy, there is compassion, there is love, there are all of these things. But He doesn't owe us grace. That's what makes God's grace so pure and loving to me. It's completely his choice to act. And we see this in Samson as well. Nobody asked for this, right? One commentator writes, Yahweh often begins precisely there, in human obscurity and hopelessness where there is no human energy or ability to serve as a starter. Samson's birth is another instance of God's way of prefacing an exceptional work with exceptional difficulties. Yahweh will bring salvation out of nothing. So just as he creates, right, out of nothing, he saves out of nothing, essentially. And finally, our final point, no greater Savior in verses 24 to 25, final two verses of our text today. Our main point throughout the book of Judges continues to stand, I believe. As I think this chapter really highlights and hammers home this emphatic point for us. There just is none like Jesus. There's just no one like him. There just isn't. Even in the wealth. Right? At our point here in 2021, we have a treasure trove of faithful, so-called faithful men and women. Not only recorded us, recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures and in the Bible. But all of Christian history, there still is none like Jesus. He is one and only. He is the one and only. Samson, even in a birth so reminiscent of Christ's, even in the providential prophecy of God's word and promise to be raised into a deliverer, what do we read and what will we read in chapter 14? Human sin, taintedness, brokenness, imperfection. Only Jesus can do what we cannot. The writer likely did not know what he was setting up for future readers, right? I don't think so. But living in AD, so to speak, 
is a blessing for us to have the entirety of the Bible, and to be able to read the book of Judges in light of what we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And see so clearly in the scriptures that deliverance can only come from one source and one vessel alone. Spurgeon once said this, There is no physician like him. Speaking of Jesus, none can save as he can. We love him and he loves us. Therefore, we put ourselves into his hands. We accept whatever he prescribes and do whatever he bids. We feel that nothing can be wrongly ordered while he is the director of our affairs. For he loves us too well to let us perish or suffer a single needless pain. There's just none like him. This is what just kept standing out for me. And it might be a point that many of you would just find mundane, right? Repetitive. Here we go with the Jesus talk again. But I don't, I hope you can see how extraordinary this lesson has been throughout the book of Judges. That no mortal deliverer can ever save you. It is interesting to note here that Samson's conception, life, and legacy were all set before time itself. God in his sovereignty decreed this man to come into this world and live the life he did for the sake of his people during his time. A fatally flawed man at that. It is then comforting for me to know that this universal decree before time also included the decree of the coming of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection gospel that we believe is salvation the only means by which we can be found in Christ and in him and be with him forever there is no greater savior than Jesus like there is no savior other than Jesus is really what I should be saying I hope that point is just hammered into your heart today in conclusion for today there is something here in this text beyond what we've already shared and looked at that I'd like to address in conclusion. Just as one final conclusive point. You can maybe call it the fourth point of the sermon. And that is this, the awesomeness of God. You know what, you know what particular conversation I really like here? Is in verse 17, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? We've seen this before, right? Burning bush. What shall, what shall I say to them when they ask, what is your name? He doesn't say, I am who I am. But he does say this, Manoah asks, what is your name, so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. Seems pretty noble, right? Intentions seem pretty clean. Here's the response of this angel. Of course, we know, of course, when in the Bible, when in the Old Testament, we read of the angel of the Lord. It's sometimes talking, most of the time, uh, about Jesus, the second person of Trinity, right? Um, but here the angel of the Lord says to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing, and here's where the English gets a little muffled compared to the Hebrew, seeing it is wonderful. Now the it, of course, there, referring to the name. But how could a name be it, right? Listen again. Why do you ask my name? Seeing, here I am, is wonderful. I don't know about you, but it's really confusing. And it's really hard to fathom what is going on at this moment. How does, how does this respond even make sense? 
How do we make sense of such a response? Here, brothers and sisters, I th the reason why I think it's so critical for you to not only read, study, and learn the Old Testament as much as we do the New Testament is because I think as New Testament believers, especially in today's world, we've lost the sense of being in awe of God. We don't do this. We don't fall on our faces to the ground. We don't go, this is God. Are we going to die? <laughs> We've lost this for some reason. We've lost being in awe of God and the awesomeness of God. This is the appropriate reverence that God deserves, isn't it? Look at verses 20 to 22 and you'll see an attitude before God. Even with these people living in dark times, right? They barely know anything about what's going on. They don't have all the information you have. They're just figuring it out as they go. And when you read these verses, what is seen there is an attitude before God. A realization of God that is foreign to too many of us today. We are, of course, familiar with and taught frequently of the love, the grace, the peace, the mercy and comfort of God, that we can boldly approach Him, that the so-called veil is torn. All true! But brothers and sisters, from Genesis to Revelation to the end of our lives, God is still God. And what He deserves does not change. The attitude of Manoah and his wife in these verses is not something that was lost in the New Testament apostles and certainly not lost in the early churches that followed them. But today, we have an unfortunate lack in our theology, a diminished reverence of God, a trembling and fear that stems from a healthy understanding of who God is and who we are. We don't get nervous or anxious around our greatest earthly heroes. Think of the people you really admire on this planet as human beings. When you meet them, when you see them face to face, when they're just on the red carpet in front of you, when you just bump into them at a gas station, when you just happen to see them crossing the street, what happens and what stirs in your heart? What, what happens to you? You get excited. You get nervous. They talk to you. You want to make sure you impress them. You want to give off some kind of of, of attitude of, and you want to let them know like I know who you are and I respect you and I know what you've done we do that with people and as Christians we say we believe in and love in a love a God this God and our attitude before him is so poor right We know something about these celebrities of ours that causes us to be in a state of respect. And yet we have this entire record of who God is and what he's done. And we proclaim with our own mouths that we believe in this. What is your attitude on Sundays as you come before him? What's your attitude right now? Manoah goes as far to say, and accurately at that, that they will die now that they have seen the Holy God. And yet we come to church with what attitude? We open our Bibles, bend our knees in prayer, fellowship with brothers and sisters. With what attitude? What is your attitude before God?
I used to hate this growing up, but I look back on how my parents sort of rose, like, raised me in the church culture. Be on time to church. Be prepared. Dress appropriately. Have a certain degree of seriousness and sternness as you come before God, but enjoy your time at church. I used to hate that. Why? Why can't I just wear whatever I want? Why can't I just do what I want? Why can't I sit the way I want to do? Why can't I, you know, just be free? <clears throat> you don't go to work late. You don't dress the way you want to. And you certainly don't have the same attitude at work as you do at church. I'm going to be a little bit blunt here. That's piss poor, man. If you have the decency to call your manager that you're going to be five minutes late for work, but you're willing to walk into a church service on a Sunday morning 10 minutes late with no absolute pain in your heart, I have no idea what kind of God you know and worship. I don't. I just don't. Brothers and sisters, let's not be like that. Please. Please, let's not be like that. And I've been there. I've been like that. And it's not a good place to be in. There's an appropriateness to these so-called old school traditions. It's because we know who God is. And when you know who God is, I believe your attitude will change over time. So, my fellow brothers and sisters, in love, it may sound like a strange desire and a strange prayer for you at this time, but as your loving pastor, my heart for you is that you would fear and tremble before God this day. Let us pray.